welcome to My Story Radio. This is uh, Monday, June 23rd, 2008, and we are on the grounds of Little Pine Island Camp in uh, in uh, outskirts of Grand Rapids, Michigan, Salvation Army Camp out here. We're here from Music Camp, and uh, this is Tom McComb, your host for My Story Radio, and we appreciate you uh, listening in and uh, hope that uh, this might be encouraging to you, or j- at, least, at least it's interesting to you. And I have in the studio today, such as it is, <laughs> uh, Mike McKee, who... Uh, uh, he's family, although he would admit it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we, I, I wanted to talk with him because uh, each time I have talked with him, he, one of the things, one of the assignments that he's had with the Salvation Army is is traveling around the world, especially with disasters. And uh, and I get the sense that there's so much more that he wanted to tell me and uh, talk to others about. And so we're going to give an opportunity for him to talk, and and hopefully you who are listening uh, will. Uh, uh, take it in, and, and maybe there's something that you can learn, something that you can learn about how God works, and uh, uh, maybe even learn a little bit something out about how uh, how people live in other parts of the world, especially in the time of, of crisis, national, uh, natural disaster, or something that's going on. So let's start out, Mike, by by introducing yourself. If somebody were to see you on the street and they, they'd want to know who you are, what you're all about, what would you tell them? Well, I'm a minister with the Salvation Army. Um, I'm married to my wife Ruth. A um, couple kids, couple grandkids, few grandkids. Um, just a pretty ordinary guy, I think, in in pretty much all respects. Uh, Lord's given me, although, um, opportunities to go a lot of places and do a lot of things, and uh, it's been pretty incredible. Uh, some of the opportunities he's given me. Not that I'm uh, any more talented or gifted or educated than uh, than anybody else. It's just uh, the way it worked. Mm-hmm. So how did it how did it come about this appointment that you had uh, this international appointment? Well, I was uh, I was appointed um, uh, from Salvation Army International Headquarters doing uh, international emergency work. Uh, my title was. Uh, field operations officer for international emergency services. And basically, it started um, years ago. It was in, uh, I believe it was in 99, when the Kosovo War was going on. It was odd. I was, um, I'd come home. I was a, a corps officer, a pastor with the Salvation Army uh, in Big Rapids, Michigan. And uh, we just opened the work there. I'd come home from work and turned on the news, and there was a uh, uh, a news story about the uh, the Kosovo War and all these refugees coming out of the mountains. And usually, you get you get immune to that kind of thing after a while. But for some reason, that really touched me. And I remember stopping and praying that the Lord would uh, send somebody to help those people. It was really it really touched me. And um, you know you you know you just move on and was thinking about other things, uh, but a, about a week later in the office, there was a uh, email that came in, and our territory with the Salvation Army was putting together um, a team of people to go over and to actually help uh, in Albania, uh, refugees who had fled from the fighting in Kosovo, the, the war was still going on, and they had a, uh, a list of criteria, and if you met this criteria, you had a passport, and you know, there was a, a lot of things. Uh, they asked that, you know, if you're willing to go to please apply. So I uh, called my wife and told her about that and said, I want to put my name in. I don't think anything's going to happen, but I'll, I'll put my name in. And um, so, she, you know, she said, fine. So I put my name in and thought that basically what this was about is the Lord wanting to know if I was willing to go. Yeah. And so I was okay with telling them I was willing to go, and I thought that was the end of it. But lo and behold, um, about oh three four weeks later, I got a call that I was selected to be on the team, and uh, ended up going over to um, uh, Albania for it was right around three months by the time I got home, and uh, they gave me a job of a logistics. Uh, Salvation Army uh, in the in the place I was working was in charge of feeding uh, people at a refugee camp. We had. 
at any given time 1,500 people in this refugee camp. Mm -hmm. And my job was to locate the uh, food and the uh, other supplies and things we need, purchase locally, and make sure that we had everything to, uh, you know, to, to serve the people. And um, I had a ball. I loved it. Uh, and um, apparently the people from headquarters saw that, and they asked me if I liked this kind of work, and they kept, uh, uh, I would go on these two, three-month deployments, and just about every year after that, um, they would give me a different assignment in different places. Yeah. But it was interesting to see that no matter where we were, uh, the Lord would always provide us um, with not only the things we needed, but uh, a means of ministry. It was really quite amazing. Really? In the, um, yeah, the, in this uh, courtship, Albania, uh, we were there in the middle of nowhere, and um, we had this big refugee camp. We're dealing with Muslim, you know, refugees from uh, from Kosovo. They're in our camp, and uh, we... Um, we had a special relationship with them. There were a lot of groups working there. A lot of different agencies came. And everybody had a part. Our part was feeding them. Um, but we had a, um, we looked at this as a ministry. And we weren't trying to shove Christianity down anybody's throat. But we wanted to show them that we cared about them. And we wanted them to see that there's something different about us. So we had a policy. It's a big camp. But whenever we were going around in the camp, Unless we had a reason to have a vehicle, like we were bringing a load of supplies into one of the kitchens, uh, for instance. Uh, but other than that, we would make it a point that we always walked through the camp so that we would be in contact with the people. We would always walk with a, uh, a translator with us. And as we were going about our, our work, if somebody's carrying things and, you know, they're having a hard time, we would help them or, you know, we would just try to be, you know, um, a friend of people. Just in simple ways to, yeah, to just yeah. be there. Very simple ways. And it was amazing because it didn't take people long, just walking by and smiling uh, at folks. But they saw that there was something different. Now, the other groups that were there, they did a very, they did excellent jobs. They, uh, you know, they did great with whatever task they had. But they were about business and about what they had to do. Yeah. Uh, they would get in their vehicle, they would go to the tent, where they would work if it was a medical group or whatever, mm -hmm. and they would get done with that, and then they would leave again. But we made a, a, a point to be amongst the people. Now, it was interesting, this valley we were in, up in the hills, and we were surrounded by by mountains. Um, I guess years ago, one of the uh, local businessmen in Korcha, uh was converted. He, he accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, and he put up in the uh, mountains this huge cross, Wow. Huge cement cross. Uh -huh. It was it was quite amazing. Well, as new people would come into the camp, um, they would once they got to feel um, comfortable with us, they being Muslims, they would always remark about what a horrible thing that is. Mm -hmm. And we would stop and say, Well, why is that horrible? And they would say, Because this is the symbol of those people that that are you know did these atrocities to us, why we had to leave our homes and you yeah. know our relatives were killed and hurt and mistreated. And you can understand their viewpoint too. Absolutely, but we told them, and you know that was our opportunity because other than that, we weren't we weren't there to pigeonhole anybody. Mm -hmm. But when they asked us about that, then we were able to say that they're misreading that because that's the symbol of Jesus Christ. The people who did these things to them weren't Christians. And at that point, we shared, we're Christians. This is what Christians do. You know, we we saw what was happening to them, and our heart was broken. And the Lord, at, you know, wanted us to come and to to serve them. And when they when they saw that and they heard that, they stopped and they had to consider. And I think a lot of them left with a completely different point of view because we shared with them a Christian. Christians don't come in and. and burn your village. Christians don't come in and kill your family. Uh, Christians come in and their heart is broken when things are happening and Christians come and serve you. And it was just, you know, a wonderful opportunity. And again, the Lord gave us uh, the wherewithal to not only meet physical needs, but actually to help, I, I, you know, I hope and I pray somewhat in a healing process to get them to understand what was going on and the fact that 
that we serve a God and we represent a God who loves them. And really on all my deployments, uh, there was um, a very clear indication of God's fingerprints all over whatever we did. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of interesting, though, because and I think about how how freely and how frequently I use my car. And I think I think sometimes, um, even where we live in our own home, in the comfort of our own culture, a lot of times we're separated from the very people that we're living next to, maybe even ministering next to, um, maybe because we're in a hurry. But I, I just think about that. That's incredible, just connecting with the people. And then they then you were able to earn their trust and being able to explain to them what, what Christianity and what Christ is really all about. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes I, you know, I now... You know, living comfortably in the United States, uh, you know, I think sometimes I drive my car too much, and you know, I don't have that interaction with you know a lot of the people I live amongst now, and it's a shame. But we intentionally did that. We intentionally made it a point to be among them and to just be a friend and a neighbor. Yeah, yeah. So that was Kosovo, and um, what uh, I mean that wasn't your that was your first deployment. My first international deployment, uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I believe uh, it's it's hard now to to get them all. Yeah, uh, to get them in the right order. Yeah, yeah. I went to um, Mozambique uh, for a couple months after flooding that happened there. Mm-hmm. Uh, some pretty dramatic flooding, and um, I helped with that project. I uh, was in Malawi, Africa, at the beginning of quite a, a significant famine and uh, helped the Salvation Army set up a feeding program in the uh, Palumbe district of uh, Malawi. And, you know, again, you know, you see the Lord's, um, you know, the Lord's leading, you know, all the way through that. Um, you know, just every place we go, um, the Lord would... would evidence himself in some way to help what we were doing and help our ministry to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Kosovo, it was a cross. What, what other ways? Well, in, in, like in, uh, in, in Malawi, uh, we were having difficult, and a difficult time with, um, with this food distribution, and they were all over Malawi. Um, when you get out to the rural areas, um, the villages are each governed by a village chief or head man, um, and um, it's quite difficult to get everybody on the same page. Um, we were working in conjunction with the uh, UN's World Food Program. And one thing that was uh, getting to be problematic and it was making the news was the fact that um, there were quite a few of the uh, local chiefs um, who would take food from people that you know the food had been distributed to. We had people assess who's really in need and who's not. They would get food. The um, chiefs would come along and take the food from them and, you know, put it all in one big um, pot, I guess, and then they would they would distribute it as they saw fit. Oh. And, and the U.N., you know, they were upset, and they were thinking, you know, um, uh, that there was corruption and favoritism going on, and they didn't know how to how to really deal with that. Well, I was we were out in the uh, district, and, you know, we were starting to come into some of those problems as well. Our assessment people had gone out, and but then when we came back after distribution, we saw that there was some of that um, confiscation going on. Yeah. Well, we're trying to figure out what to do about it, and uh, we were at one of our uh, Salvation Army centers and getting ready. Uh, they were going to fix us a lunch, mm-hmm. and all they had there to uh, to drink was uh, some some of the local water. And of course, being an American, I know you avoid that. Yeah, that's right. So there were some about a half mile away. There were some little um, uh, little places where uh, little stores that, that people were selling uh, bottled coke. Mm-hmm. And so me and uh, another one of uh, one of the uh, international folks said, "Well, look, while you're finishing cooking dinner, we'll just walk down to this, uh, you know, to one of these little stores, and we'll buy you know several bottles of coke for everybody, and you know we can we can share that." So we we go and we're walking down this road and there's um you know uh, African folks walking down that road too and there was one gentleman uh, African gentleman looked fairly distinguished walking down this dusty road with a suit jacket and a tie on wow and so uh, anyway so sticking out like a sword oh tongue. yeah but you know very dignified man and he kind of noticed us and we you know noticed him and went over and introduced ourselves and just started talking 
and uh, he asked what we were there for, and uh, we explained. And we asked, you know, well, you know, do you mind us asking, you know, what what do you do? You know, you you live around here, obviously. And uh, anyways, it turns out that this gentleman who was the uh, local head chief for the uh, for the district, he was the he was the guy who governs, you know, the local governor for all of the local or all the village chiefs in our area. So he's got a lot of influence. Yeah. Just what a coincidence. We're just walking down the road and there he yeah. is. You know, again, I, you know, God's uh, fingerprints all over this. So we shared with them, you know, what our concerns were and said we really wanted to talk to the uh, local chiefs. We didn't have a clue how to do that. And, um, you know, that we needed to explain to them that, um, you know, in our mind, what they were doing was they were trying, the local chiefs thought they knew more than, than you know, these assessors who come and go, yeah. what the needs were. And so in their minds, they were thinking, you know, if we just get all this, all this food, then we can distribute it uh, more fairly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the UN was looking at that as corruption, and they are getting ready to, to stop. So we asked the head chief if we could, you know, how we would meet with these folks, and he told us, he said, well, give me a, you know, give me a few days, but he would call them all together. Uh-huh. And we had a meeting with all these, uh, huge meeting with all these cool. local village chiefs and headmen, many of whom were women, uh, which was uh, a little surprising to us. We didn't think that they would be, mm-hmm. uh, there'd be that much uh, representation from women. But we explained to them and, and let them know the role of the assessors and said, look, we know what you're trying to do. We know that you want to make sure people aren't falling between the cracks. Come to us uh, if that happens, but please let the distribution go as it is. If you need to add anybody, again, come to us and we'll, we'll have another look. But we were able to get that all straightened out. As a matter of fact, they used our... Um, uh, our district is a model for some of the other districts as well. But again, this was just because we happened to be walking down the road and the Lord decided to bless us and to put us in contact with the one gentleman in the whole district that could really help us out. And that was in Malawi. That was in Malawi. Uh-huh. And uh, we fed hundreds of thousands of people there uh, over a period of, of several years, and it was, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. But again, the Lord, you know, it's not that... that uh, we were particularly clever. It's the Lord again wanted this to be successful, and He put people uh, in contact with us who could make things happen. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. great. Cool. Okay. So uh, what else? I, I mean, you, what happened in Mozambique, or is there anything? Boy, Mozambique was uh, was was a while ago, and I, you know, I um, I was there to close out the uh, close out the project. Yeah. Um, but. It was, you know, um, I can't remember too much, um, too much specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that really got my attention was uh, the one that really um, got me uh, into my job at international headquarters, and that was the project we did in Iraq. Oh, sure. Um, that was uh, that was quite a, uh, I guess, story of God's leading as well. Um, well, if you got a couple minutes, we... Uh, we got all the time you want. All the time you want. Well, what happened is, um, I don't know if you remember the run-up to the war, uh, but before the war actually started in 2003, the uh, international humanitarian community was um, very concerned. And they were estimating that there, were, there would be at least a million people that would flee and become refugees as soon as the shooting started. Sure. And uh, the Salvation Army was uh, present at some of these UN meetings where they were talking about this, and the decision was made at headquarters that um, the Salvation Army, you know, for any uh, anything that big with so many people who would suddenly be in need, that the Salvation Army would uh, become involved. And they um, assigned two officers, uh, Major Cedric Hills and Major uh, Mike Olson. Hmm. Uh, Major Hills was a, is a, a British officer. Major Michael uh, Olson is a uh, American. But they assigned these two officers to go over into the area and to see how the Salvation Army could fit in with everybody else's efforts. Well, the early thinking was that these refugees would flee to Iran. So the two majors um, thought, well, their place would then be to go to Iran and help set up an infrastructure for a big refugee uh, center. Mm-hmm. Well, they tried to get into Iran, couldn't do it. 
I don't know if it was the fact that uh, we're a Christian organization. I imagine that was probably part of uh, it. Yeah, yeah big a part big of part of it. But they couldn't get visas, and they tried and they tried and they tried and they tried to pull some strings. They could not get a visa to get into Iran. A lot of the other major groups did, but we we sure didn't. The UN was there, and and Red Cross and international aid. A lot of people were there, but we couldn't get in. So just before the actual war started, the two majors decided they needed to be somewhere in the region if they were going to be useful at all. So they decided to uh, go to Kuwait, uh -huh. and they went to a Kuwait city. They got a uh, they rented an apartment that they used for an office and uh, waited for the war to start. The war starts, and a couple things happened. First of all, there was not the big uh, mass exodus of refugees. Yeah. So all of those um, agencies and folks who had gotten into Iran to start setting up this big infrastructure, they didn't have a whole lot to do because there were not millions of people crossing the border over into Iran. Yeah. Coincidentally, uh, if you believe in coincidence, um, about three or four miles away from the office that the two majors set up, um, the uh, coalition's forces set up a, uh, a humanitarian information center where they would um, uh, let folks know the needs that they were seeing of the local population and also uh, let them, you know, let people know what areas were safe enough for civilians to come in and start working. Well, the two majors were <laughs> yeah, perfectly set up. So they started attending these meetings. Mm -hmm. And uh, Major Olson, bless his heart, uh, he determined or, you know, he recognized that one of the problems in, in southern uh, Iraq as, as the war was moving northward, um, one of the biggest problems was the inavailability of cooking gas. Oh, people, okay. people aren't hooked up to national or natural gas like they are here. They would yeah. cook with cylinders of propane or different mixture, yeah. but basically mm -hmm. propane, um, just like we use in our outdoor grills. But this hadn't been available for a long time, and people didn't have it. And uh, there were reports of people, um, you know, breaking up furniture even just to make a little fire to cook. So as soon as it was safe in the south... Um, Major Olson arranged this huge uh, shipment from Kuwait into Iraq of this bottled cooking gas. And they wow. went to the port city, the uh, uh, southernmost port city of Umm Qasar, and they brought all this cooking gas in. And um, it, was, it was successful, and it was just wildly appreciated by the people. And uh, as far as we're able to tell, that was the first major humanitarian assistance that went into uh, Iraq. Now, very quickly, you know, the humanitarian folks there uh, saw the uh, Salvation Army as the cooking gas people. Sure. And they thought that that was going to be our project. You kind of so, get typecast in. Yeah. yeah. So, they, anyways, they thought that's what we were going to do. And at that point, um, I got a call, uh, minding my own business up in Big Rapids, Michigan. And uh, I got a call from Major Olson, and he said... Uh, how would you like to come to Iraq and manage a cooking gas distribution program? And I said, are you kidding me? I'd love to. And so um, uh, that Easter was 2003. Easter Sunday, we did our Easter service at the core mm -hmm. at our church. And uh, after that was done, came home and finished packing and got on the plane that day and went to London and then to uh, Kuwait. Well, I just recently, just, just arrived there a day or so, just trying to get over some jet lag and get my feet on the ground, and we were contacted by the United States Marine Corps. <laughs> they had heard that the Salvation Army were the cooking gas people. <laughs> and, yeah. And, but they told us, they came to us, and they told us that they had gone up as far as the uh, uh, city of Al-Qut, and it's south, and I think a little west maybe, but I know it's a little bit south of Baghdad. But they said they got up to there, and as they were, um, you know, taking the city, they came across a cooking gas bottling facility. And they said, basically, you know, Salvation Army, do you want to come and take a look at this? You know, to see if it would be helpful to you as you want to get cooking gas to people. And we said, well, yeah, you know, we'd be, you know, we'd be happy, but how in the world we get up there? You know, they're still fighting and stuff going yeah, on. And, yeah, you right. know, we're Salvation Army, okay, but we don't drive tanks. <laughs> and uh, he... Uh, they said to us, no problem, we'll fly you up, 
and you know we'll we'll have a uh, you know a contingency of of folks go with you to make sure you're safe and we'll escort you in but if you want to come and look at this we would be happy to you know to arrange that so we said sure so the next day major olson and myself went to a military air base in kuwait and uh, after waiting for a while we were picked up by a, a big uh, marine c-130 and we took a ride with a lot of marines and equipment in this plane um, to al Kut. well we get in the plane and we're kind of just trying to get comfortable and whatnot and um, the pilot called back and said I, I, I understand we have a couple of Salvation Army officers with us uh, would you guys like to come up to the cockpit and look around we said sure you know I mean this is an, an adventure yeah yeah so we, Most we of the life yeah I mean you know we're like kids and so we said sure so we go up and we go into the, the cockpit and we're looking around and I looked out the window and I was shocked we were flying real low we're going over the desert, but had there been trees, we would have been hitting them. I had never been so low in a plane flying in my life. It was it was shocking to look out the window. And so I asked the uh, the pilot, I said, you know, I've never been so low. Why are we this slow? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I've got good news and bad news for you. <laughs> and, you know, that's usually my luck. So I said, okay, what's the good news? And he said, well, the good news is we're flying way too low for the enemy to lock anti-aircraft missiles on us. They just, when you're below a certain level, um, the angle is so extreme or something that their anti-aircraft missiles just will not lock onto you. And I said, wow, that's great. That is good news. I feel a lot better about flying this low. I said, but what's the bad news? And he says, well, look how close we are. He says, any kid with a slingshot can hit us. <laughs> so great. <laughs> so, I, you know, but, you know, comparing a missile, slingshot, missile, slingshot, yeah, I'll fly low. <laughs> so anyways, we get to the, we get to Al-Kut and we unload and uh, they have a, a nice escort for us. And we get over and we uh, we spend most of the day at this a facility taking note of what works, what doesn't, what kinds of things we would likely need to get this up and running so that we can start distributing cooking gas. After quite a day, uh, we find ourselves back at the uh, uh, airstrip. It's a little bit after midnight now, and another C-130 lands to take us back to Kuwait. And uh, so we get on the plane and get in the back, and we're just trying to get comfortable. The plane takes off. And we're flying for maybe 10, 15 minutes, and all of a sudden the plane just, it it was incredible, it just jerks left and it jerks right, and then it starts climbing pretty steeply, and uh, the guy gave it some more uh, some more fuel, and I mean, we, you know, you're kind of pushed back a little bit, because, <laughs> I mean, it was quite a bumpy ride, and we couldn't understand what was going on, and... Uh, you know, so we're trying to figure out, and the best anyone back there, and there were a couple of Marines back there with us, and the best anyone could think is, well, maybe, you know, it's a late night, maybe the pilot started to fall asleep and had to pull up real quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyhow, it was, you know, a few minutes, and the, the flight, um, you know, calmed down, and it was a nice, smooth ride the rest of the way. We landed in Kuwait. The pilot came back as we were getting off and said, uh, Sorry about the uh, bumpy ride back there, but I want to tell you what happened. He said they were, you know, we we had left, and he said we were flying low again. Uh, but being enemy territory, they didn't have any lights on, um, and um, they had their night vision goggles oh. as they were flying. And they said they got to one area and they looked, and in their night vision goggles, they could see all these muzzle flashes. People were shooting at us. So he did a little fancy flying and got us out of there. We never heard anything hit. Uh, the plane, and, um, you know, I don't think anything did. But, uh, you know, this guy's telling us this about being shot at and whatnot. He's got this big smile on his face. Uh-huh. So I asked him, um, you know, you know, this is great, and, and, you know, you don't know how grateful I am that you got us out of there. Well, why are you so well, Why are you smiling like that? And he says, oh, he says, don't mind that. He says, uh, I'm in the Marine Reserves. He says, my, my usual job is I fly for American Airlines. Said now I can tell all my friends back home I flew in combat, <laughs> and so we told them, uh, you know, I said, well that's great, but next time you want a story for your friends, please drop us off first. <laughs> but the neat thing that happened is, is this this story um, got around the humanitarian folks in Kuwait and at the Hick that the uh, Salvation Army. Um, I don't know if they were saying we're crazy, but they said we. <laughs> We go places, and we will go and do what needs to be done. Um, Major Mike Olson was at a uh, 
shortly after that was at a meeting with uh, some UN folks where they told us that they wanted to get uh, food distribution going in southern Iraq again. Uh, they wanted to basically start up what used to be the uh, oil for food program, mm -hmm. the one that was in the news so much. Yeah. Anyways, they wanted to get this going, but they couldn't. They couldn't get their international people, and I don't know if it was political or what, or if it was just logistical. But they wanted to get this thing going right away, but they couldn't get their international people to manage the warehouse facilities to to get the thing going. So hearing the story about. Uh, the Salvation Army folks, they asked if, <laughs> <laughs> if the Salvation Army would be interested in uh, going and uh, supplying folks to uh, six or seven uh, different warehouse facilities around southern Iraq uh, where we would uh, get this food distribution going again and give them some time to get their international people in place. So um, we said, well, sure, but we don't know, you know exactly what that's going to entail. So I found myself um, uh, the next day going with a group of uh, World Food Program people into Iraq uh, to hit some of these warehouse places to take note of where they were and uh, you know if they were damaged or not and to see what it would take to get this food distribution going. And uh, basically the Salvation Army ended up, because of all of that, um, getting a contract with the UN uh, World Food Program to... Uh, work and uh, we ended up with six teams of people in six cities in uh, southern Iraq uh, to get their food distribution That's going. Yeah. And we ended up feeding, uh, at, you know, well, actually millions of people mm -hmm. um, wow. from that. And it was just, again, this isn't what we had originally come there to do. Yeah. But we were there and, you know, our prayer from the beginning was, Lord, you know, show us what you want us to do and how we can you know, make a practical difference in the lives of people. And uh, uh, he led. And, mm -hmm. you know, we went from a cooking gas distributor yeah. uh, to, you know, a wild ride on the plane to now we're, uh, we're helping with this big food distribution. And, again, it was, uh, it was quite a, quite a uh, program. Uh, we, we did that for basically three months until they uh, were able to put uh, World Food Program people in place, in which case we uh, uh, withdrew. But on the basis of our contacts and stuff that we had made, uh, that gave us a, a foothold uh, and some local staff uh, in Iraq. And from that, uh, we started projects of uh, rebuilding schools, uh, houses, wow. uh, water pumping stations, um, um, all kinds of all kinds of things, actually millions of dollars worth of, uh, worth of projects that we were doing humanitarian work uh, in um, Iraq. Now, the uh, Salvation Army decided early on that um, that probably wouldn't be a, a place for long-term, uh, you know, Salvation Army presence. But they wanted us to come up with a an exit strategy after things, uh, you know, after we did what we thought we could do. Um, and our exit strategy ended up being that we would form a... a, a uh, a group, a humanitarian group of Iraqis who mm -hmm. had been working with us, and um, we would hand off um, contracts and contacts and, and projects to them. As a matter of fact, uh, these folks were still, uh, Salvation Army is still working with them. Our London office is um, uh, working and helping to, uh, you know, helping with technical assistance for writing grants. And Providing some support for them to continue. To continue to do what they're doing. So, uh, the w work we had done, and you know, we had done very quietly, is still continuing uh, in Iraq. Wow! But it was, it was that was a huge, uh, you know, uh, just a, a huge opportunity. And time after time after time, the Lord uh, just led in, in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, had a story about my uh, finding a, a translator, which was uh, quite. Yeah. If you got us. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I, I remember this story, but go ahead and yeah, tell yeah. yeah. Well, um after I came back with the uh from my little trip with the UN people, mm -hmm. um our uh, Major Olson and Major Cedric Hills decided that, you know, this is something that we're going to do. So they started to call um 
and get, you know, Salvation Army personnel to come in and to be our team members. Mm -hmm. uh, to come to these cities, we ended up in six. My job was going to be then, in, uh, went from being, you know, distributing cooking gas to being in charge of this, this program. So what I needed to do is very quickly, while these teams are still being organized, I needed to get back into um, Iraq and to go to these different cities and start to hire, find a place for our folks to live, hire translators and, and transportation and things for them mm -hmm. so that we could, you know, we could hit the ground running. So I, you know, I was in contact with, uh, while I was in Iraq, uh, with the World Food Program, I was in contact with Major Olson and found this was the plan. So on the way out, uh, knowing that I would come back shortly uh, to start working, I knew I needed to get a translator for myself. Yeah. So as we were coming back, we stopped in Basra, and um, we stopped at a, a British uh, military unit, and they had a civil affairs officer, a man named uh, Captain Ed Locke. A wonderful gentleman. Anyways, I, uh, I had an opportunity to talk to him, and I told him what was going on and the fact that within probably three or four days I would have to come back into um, into Iraq. I would need to hire a, a translator immediately, a good one, and then get you know get to work setting up the infrastructure for our teams. Yeah. And uh, I asked uh, Major or Captain Locke if he knew of any good translators that are looking for a job. He said, I've got just the guy for you. Um, he says it's a brother of their best translator, and if they would hire him if they needed another one, but they don't. They said they would, you know, tell this guy, you know, to, to just hold on that he's got a position for him. So I went back to Kuwait, and after a couple of days of resting, uh, I loaded up the uh, vehicle to go back into uh, go back into uh, Iraq to start working. Now, I knew I'd already had this appointment more loosely set up with. Uh, with Captain Locke, but I remember praying before I left, and I was very specific, and uh, I prayed, and I said, Lord, you know what we're going to do today, and you know what we want to do. You know what I need. I need a translator and a guide, someone to go with me, and I don't want just, just a translator. You need to send me, please, you send me the right person. And I got done praying. I got in the vehicle, went, you know, crossed the border, went to, uh, went to Basra. Got to Basra, went right to the military unit, and um, looked up Captain Locke. And, of course, he's not there. Captain Locke's nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. uh, matter of fact, somebody said, well, they think he had a few days of R&R. &R. So I told them, I asked around some of the officers, told them what I was looking for. Nobody had any idea about this, this translator. So I was a little bit discouraged, but you always go with a plan B. And I had a great plan B. My plan B was to go over. Uh, the UN had a had an office in Basra. And I knew several people from my little trip around Iraq. Mm -hmm. So I was going to go to that UN um, office and talk to these people. And, of course, they would know somebody. Sure. So I went there. Mm -hmm. And I asked for each of the people I knew. And, of course, none of them were there. So I asked who it, you know, who it was that's doing applications for, uh, taking applications for the UN. Then they told me the person and, if, and I asked where he was and of course he was not there either. I was striking out all over the place. Hmm. And so at that point I hadn't really considered a plan C yet. So I thought, okay, uh, this isn't going to work. So I walked out of the front door and here, right in front of the UN, there was a group of Iraqis that had started to gather. Now, that's either good news or bad news. Yeah, that's it's, true. Yeah. It's very good news that these people are looking for jobs, and frequently they'll come to the U.N. and try to, to get hired for different jobs, which would be good for me. But very often, if they have grievances or they want to protest, they would go to the, and start at the U.N. So rather than just wading into the crowd and find out this isn't the right kind of crowd, <laughs> I thought it best to walk past them. I got about a half a block down, and I stopped. I turned around, and I'm watching this group of people to see, uh, you know, who they are and what they're here for. What the dynamics are, and you yeah. can kind of read the crowd a little bit. Yeah. So as I'm watching them, um, a young man approaches me from from my back, and I, I kind of, see, you know, detect some movement. I turn around, and here's a, a nice-looking young man, uh, Iraqi, and he uh, looks at me and says, Well, you're not Iraqi. Are you with the U.N.? And I said, no, I'm with the Salvation Army. 
He said, Salvation Army, what's that? And I explained to him, I said, we're a Christian group. I said, and we've come over here because uh, we feel that, uh, that you know, our, our spiritual duty is to come over and to really to help people and to serve people. And we, we know that there are a lot of Iraqis that are suffering. And so we've come to do, you know, to do something about it. And I said, young man, I said, you speak very good English. Are you looking for a job? And he told me, no, I'm not looking for a job. He says uh, he was working on his Ph.D. in microbiology, of all things. Uh, he said he's just waiting for Baghdad University to, to, to open up again, and he would be back at his studies. And I said, boy, I said, do you know, do you have any friends that speak English as well as you do? Because I told him, I'm looking for a translator. And I said, I need a translator and a guide to go with me. Uh, as I set up this, this food distribution program, I told him about what we were going to do with the UN. And uh, he paused for a minute and he said, well, he said, I'll help you. And I thought for a minute, I said, well, wait a minute. He, just a minute ago, he said he's not he looking for a job. Yeah. And now he's saying, you know, he'll work with me. So I asked him, uh, you know, I thought, okay, well, that's good. You know, he does speak good. And he seems like a nice young man. But I'd probably be prudent to ask him ahead of time, you know, to come up with an agreement on what his salary should be. Yeah, that's right. And so I uh, I asked him, I said, well, you know, before we go, let's, you know, let's, uh, you know, come to an agreement. What, you know, you will have to be with me 24 hours a day, probably weeks, you know, days at least, maybe going into weeks at a time, um, you know, as we set up a, a food program and then help troubleshoot the different places um, to make sure that the, you know, the food is actually getting to the folks. So what do you think, you know, uh, that, you know, a, a fair salary would be? And he looked at me again and he says, didn't you hear me? He says, I'm not looking for a job. He says, but you're here to help my country. He says, I like what I see. I like what I hear. And I want to come with you and help. Oh, wow. Just and, volunteering. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, I said, well, we need to get going. Uh, you know, I said, I, I want to get to Al-Khut, uh, you know, before dark today, you know, and that'd be the first place we, we start setting up. Uh, and then he asked me, do we have enough time? Uh, do we need to leave right now or, or do we have enough time for him to stop at his house and get a change of clothes? And, uh, I mean, <laughs> so he, so he was willing to go oh, right there. Yeah. So no, we, so we went to his house and we got this, you know, we got his things together. He was with me my, my entire time there. Um, we only ever had two arguments. A young man's name was Omaya, and he was a wonderful, wonderful young man. Um, we only ever had two arguments. The first argument was uh, when it was payday over there. We had, you know, you don't have a checking account in Iraq in those days. Um, so we had to pay everybody in cash. And, of course, we needed signed vouchers being the Salvation Army. We're very careful with what mm -hmm. we do. Uh, so one argument we would have every month would be payday. I would give him a voucher and say, Amaya, I need you to sign this. And he'd say, what for? So, so I can give you this money. And then he'd say, but I'm not working with you. And uh, he says, I'm helping my friends. And so I would explain to him, okay, well, see if you follow me, Amaya. I'm allowing you to help your friends, right? So, so you have to help me to help my friend. And my friend has a family. My friend could use some money. My friend should probably just be quiet and sign this voucher so I can give him this money. <laughs> and he, you know, we finally get him to sign the voucher. But that was one one argument. The only other argument we ever really had would involve coming up to a building. If we, you know, had to go someplace and have a meeting or see somebody, we're walking up to a building. If Omaya got there a couple steps before I did, he would open the door so that I could walk through. That was nice, very polite, and I very much appreciate it. But if I got there a couple steps ahead of Omaya, I would grab the door and hold it open so he could walk through first. Well, he, he wasn't going to have that. Like and that. so we would argue, and he'd say, oh, no, no, you're a guest in my country. I hold the door, you walk through. And mm -hmm. I would say, but you're my friend, and in America, we hold, you know, we hold the door for our friend, and you're my friend, so you please... You know, please, allow me to hold the door. You walk in. And uh, so we had this little argument a couple times until we just came to a truce and said, okay, whoever arrives there first, they get to open the door for the other one. Mm -hmm. But um, he was a great young man, a Muslim young man, as was most of our staff. But I had the opportunity to explain to him 
time and time again while we were there, uh, I would ask him, I'd say, oh my, you know why you're with us? You're with us because God wanted you to be with us. And I explained how, how I got him that I got up that morning to get a translator, but I asked and I prayed specifically that God sends to me the right person. I went to Captain Ed Locke where I thought I had somebody arranged. That didn't work out. Then I went to the UN where I thought I could find somebody. That didn't work out. So then as I was standing on the sidewalk watching this group, God sent him to me. Yeah. He was the right person and he was instrumental in, in the success that we had there. And again, that's just another uh, example of God's fingerprints on our projects. He, um, you know, we would ask uh, for leading, we'd ask for guidance, we would ask for, for help. And every time, the Lord would provide something in Omaya. And I, I, I was pleased to uh, explain that to him and to his family. He was with us because this was God's idea, because we spe- I specifically asked God to provide me the right guy, and God sent him to me. Mm-hmm. And he recognized that then. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, when we would go to the different uh, to the different areas, the, the six different cities that we had this, um, uh, you know, that we were working, I would always make it a point to, uh, you know, to have a devotional time with the staff, and, mm-hmm. and we would pray and, you know, and read the Bible and whatnot. Now all of our all of our um, staff were Muslims. I mean, they're they're you know in Iraq and they're Muslims. Now. When we got there, we were very careful to tell them that, you know, we were going to do this, and they were welcome to join us. But if they didn't want to join us, they were uncomfortable in joining us, that that was perfectly okay, too, and that wouldn't matter to us one bit. They're perfectly welcome, or they were welcome to to sit it out, you know, but please allow us the time to do this. When we first got there... um, they very politely excused themselves, but they remained off, you know, within earshot to see what it was we were doing and to watch us. But after working with us, and I think seeing seeing us and seeing really what what our hearts were like, by the time we left, almost all of the uh, the local Iraqi staff would join us in the uh, in the devotional times, and they would join wow. us for a time of prayer. They would join us. Uh, when we read the Bible, and when we would, you know, do a little devotional, you know, thought for uh, for the day or the time we were together. But uh, again, uh, it was a matter we weren't we weren't out there to uh, uh, to you know drum the Bible into anybody. But we felt that our job was to help people and to show folks who maybe hadn't had much contact with Christians what we were like and what our hearts were like. And um, I think we were we were very very successful, and again the Lord provided us the means to do that, and I think He blessed uh, our efforts. So a lot of it is just some misconceptions that they had, and uh, just like um, you know, typical person in the United States has no idea, maybe has some preconceptions, some prejudiced ideas about somebody from another culture, uh, people who are Muslims, and you know, obviously that happens here, but I mean it was happening there. Uh, just the opposite way around. Oh, absolutely. And I, I tell you, I had some, um, I had some preconceived ideas as well. I had no idea how um, um, how hospitable the Iraqi people would be. And you don't, you know, if you watch the local news, uh, you don't get that impression at all. Mm-mm. But I had a, uh, we had a vehicle. It was a really nice, <laughs> nice vehicle. It was a Toyota Land Cruiser, and it was. It, operate on diesel. It had two gas tanks because we needed the extra range. But we also had several um, these jerry cans that we kept filled with diesel fuel so that if we were anywhere we were in Iraq, if something bad happened, I always wanted to know I had enough fuel to bug out and to get to Kuwait. Mm-hmm. So um, we carried this around with us. There were a couple oper- or a couple times when uh, we couldn't find any fuel locally and we had to stop and use some of this. Every time we did that, we pulled off to the side of the road and got out and started to, to put some fuel from the jerry cans into our tank. People would come out of their houses and they'd cross the street. They'd come over to us and they would say, are you okay? And they would, they would talk through our translator, of course. Mm-hmm. But are you, are you guys all right? And, you know, we'd explain to them that, yeah, we're okay. We're just putting some fuel in the car. And they would say, uh, well, it's a hot day. 
would you like you know would you like to come in and and have some water um would you like you have some time would you like to stay with us we're going to have a meal in a little while would wow. you want to be guests mm-hmm. you know our guests uh, for a meal and this was every time we would stop the people were were just very kind and very gracious not at all what you see uh, on the news and i was uh you know um no, when I got back, uh, you know, into the states after after being there for three months, I would get angry watching the news and seeing how how some of the local people were being portrayed. And of course, yeah. there's there's insurgencies and there's some people doing some uh, tremendously evil things over there. But most of the people there were just, you know, they didn't have a problem that we were foreigners. They didn't have a problem that we were Christian. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to to be hospitable and and kind to us. And I'm really looking forward to the day when uh, uh, security is such when I can go back again because uh, yeah uh, I want to I want to see some of my friends again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well and and um, you know there's there's the end of that story with your translator too you want to share that or it's kind of painful well yeah um, Oh, it was uh, around Christmas time, um, just last year. We uh, we received word that um, um, Omaya had been had been killed. Um, I knew when we left, he had been uh, he had been very nervous. Um, the insurgency they uh, uh, they were attacking uh, people who were very well educated, and it wasn't it wasn't safe. Uh, for those folks, but he uh, he had gone back to school, and I believe he had gotten he had gotten his his degree, and he was teaching in Baghdad, and uh, he had found a, a neighborhood where he was fairly safe. Uh, he came to visit uh, his family. They have a Eid festival, I guess, at the end of Ramadan, and he came down to Basra to be with his family, uh, uh, his his parents, and. Uh, some of the siblings uh, during this Eids festival, and um, while he was there, um, uh, about 30 militia people pulled up, and they came in and they dragged him out. And the next day, his father got a call to come and, and collect his body, and he had been uh, he had been shot repeatedly. Um, hmm. You know, it 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 just breaks your heart. But um, you know, here was a young man who, um, you know, he gave of himself, and you know, the only you know the only thing he ever seemed to want to do was to to help folks. But he was he was uh, he was a friend, and it, it's a painful it's a painful mm-hmm. uh, a painful thing. Mm-hmm. 